Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung, welcome. Well, surely, be, ahoy there, um, <laughs> Mahatis. Um, welcome to We Have Ways Shiver of Making. Me timbers. <laughs> me timbers. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making me t- Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we are in the bowels. Well, no, it's not the bowels. It's the bowels of B turret. The bowels. Of, well, no, we're in A turret. Underneath B turret. We've gone forward to A turret. We're below the waterline on HMS Belfast, in the most extraordinary place. Um, if you listen to our last podcast, we talked about. Uh, uh, from HMS Belfast, we talked about why turret and the idea of the turret being a single self-contained unit so an explosion would be contained across decks so it would go vertically rather than horizontally. And we've just come down some health and safety approved ladders rather than the real thing through a, a bulkhead cut in uh, uh, that's been cut into to allow visitors through into this. This is the most extraordinary yeah. room, Jim, isn't it? It it really is. So we've got we've got all these tubes coming out of the, you know, from sort of floor to ceiling of, of this particular area. We've got a sort of rotation rotational ring lined with shells. We've then got wooden stacks of yet more shells, um, literally every which way you look, uh, and you can see how this process would. Well, no, you can't actually. Um, but fortunately, we're joined by Rob Rumble and we're talking by Nigel Steele of the Imperial War Museum who can explain exactly what happens here because presumably... The, so this road... This, road, this carousel of... This carousel of, of shells. And it actually looks almost as pretty, to be fair. Um, goes 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 circular in a circular motion round these tubes. But how do you get it into the tubes? So you'd have had um, sailors standing inside the carousel... Right. ...picking up the shells and then loading them into the hoist. So you can lift them up. Man, a man can lift up a 50 kilo. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, they, of course you can. Yes, um, you, just, just about yes, and they they would uh, be constantly um, rotating, and the hoists would have been constantly ticking away whilst at action stations. You'd have had other sailors standing roughly where we are now, going back to these wooden racks that you mentioned, and adding more, adding to, the more to the carousel. There would have been a showroom commander down here um, who would have been receiving instructions as to what sort of shell to load, be it armor-piercing, high-explosive. Order would come in and they'd put different shells onto the carousel, depending on what but the But Rob, can, can, we, can we move around so we can see where it is that the, the <laughs> shells get loaded up? Is that possible? Presumably it's yeah, around here, let's, is uh, it? So I'm, I'm, moving around to, I'm moving around to starboard. Yes, it is starboard, James. Well done. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Yeah, and we're not far from the... Well, we're, just to use the right parlance. So the only thing forward of us here is the forecastle, isn't it, basically? The rest of the ship forward of here, right? Yeah, we're, we're um, as near near to the front where the um, where the forward turrets are. And um, um, just looking at now where the sailors within this carousel would have been putting the shells onto these little loading trays and then they would have been swung into place. And you can just about see these um, sort of cylinders within the yep. hoists and you would have 
placed the shell perfectly in time onto the top of one of those, and that would have um, allowed it to continue its journey. It's reminding me of four decks. So these just run around, and they just and they so that you're you're effectively putting it onto a kind of a tray. That's it. Yeah. They're constantly running. So around. I mean, it's reminding me of one of those things you stick, you know, the message, internal message scoop tube things where you. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Sort of air pressure thing, but it's obviously yeah. not the. That's it's not it's a mechanical one. one. It's mechanical. As well. uh, and, and the idea is though that this this runs like complete clockwork, and uh, and the the men are part of the machine in effect, aren't they? That that the, they're as mechanical as any of the. That's it, exactly. Devices in here. Exactly. We, we think of Belfast as being, we call it a living machine, where all eight to 900 um, crewmen are there to serve the technology of the ship, be it its, its radar, its communications, its gunnery, its engines and boilers, all with a specific skill which they're constantly training at to perfect. And they all have their part within a much larger system. And it's the skill of the officers in charge to keep that system of manpower and machine well-oiled, both literally and figuratively, yeah, um, yeah. To, mean, to make sure that Belfast was as potent a weapon um, as she could possibly, she could be. possibly be at, uh, at a moment's notice. I, I mean, but this doesn't move around with a turret, does it? Yes, it, it, it can we see there's a, there's a steel there's a, ring within the carousel. So all this moves. And all, all of this would, all, all would move. Because these line up with each gun. So yes, I was going to say. If, if the guns move, yeah. the, the hoist This all has move. to move around and too. And you can see on the internal ring here how it all moves around. This, this part, to, to this point here, right. these hoists have to move in line with the guns. So if, if you deflect your gun that way, the hoists have to move. We're all moving around. So we're all we're shuffling all, around so, so, to keep so up So this with bit them. would stay, but this bit in the ring would move. Got it. So the ring moves. I'm always saying that if, one of the things I rather fancy was taking the whole of one of the turret out, lifting that out so we could see what it looks like and putting a giant lift shaft in the middle here, because it would make a fantastic disabled lift. <laughs> you know, because it, 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 it's an, when you look at the ships when they're being built, there's four massive holes in the ships yeah. where the turrets are going to go. Before they put the turrets in, you can actually see them on the on launch time. They they actually come down and you can see these four huge big holes. So they just get craned in and just they would get put in, yeah. And you and, and it's the same with the engines as well and all the turbines. It's they a hell of a thing, in. isn't it? I mean, the thing that I, mean, I remember last time I was down here in Belfast. The thing that really strikes you is. This is a cruiser. This isn't even a battleship. It's freaking huge, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and it's so complex. I mean, you you don't doubt the complexity or the cost of building one of these when you yeah. when you're visiting this. The complexity of all the different component parts into it. I mean, it's it's so complex, isn't it? The thing that you have this technology at this time in the 1930s is just astonishing. And yeah. I think Imperial War Museum is, is very conscious of how difficult it is to maintain as a fighting entity, simply because preserving it in civilian times as a visitor attraction for people to come to. There is so much work to do, it is constant. It's like the, the kind of apocryphal painting of the fourth road bridge, yeah. it is constantly painting and cleaning and maintaining and replacing and watching and making well sure that everything is done properly. It, it, you, you can't sleep for a moment because something always needs to be done because particularly, you have to remember that this is a vessel that floats in water. Yes, I was just going to um, say it's sat in water that's eating it. Yeah, and and it, 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 it rains on it, snows on it, dries it out, everything. 
the full range of weather and environmental factors which you would face as a, a ship in commission, even though the ship isn't in commission, it still faces the same factors because it lives in the Thames and, it, and it's exposed to all the, the elements of, well, uh, outside. So. And there's not 800 matlows on it to keep it clean and... No, no, we, we have a, a very restricted conservation crew who, who <laughs> battle away with, I have to say, the superb help of many volunteers who come in and work for, for the Imperial War Museum, and we're very, very grateful for that at all the sites, but Belfast in particular, keeping up with this challenging task is something that we wouldn't be able to do without the volunteers, and, it, and it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for them, I hope. Hmm. Wow. Well, I think it's absolutely amazing. Can we see the engines? Uh, you want to see the engines? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we go the engines through the boiler room, the two stages. Okay. The boiler Excellent. makes the steam and then the steam drives the turbines. Brilliant. We're going okay. to take a very quick break and we'll be back with the boilers. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Right, well, we're walking through, which deck are we on? So we're on two deck at the moment, which is the main sort of living area for the sailors um, when they're off duty. We've got the mess decks, we've got the... Um, what the have you found there, Jim? Provision at? issue room, ah, the provision which is suddenly looking a little bit more kind of, not Napoleonic exactly, but, but you know... Prunes. Wow, Please, peas split. Fourteen pounds. <laughs> the, well, Please split one. fourteen pounds and prunes fourteen pounds. Yeah. The one provision that was issued from here was I'll the, uh, the cruise rum. Ah, yes, the rum ration. I was going to. I was going to ask you about that when we were when we were in in the shell room because uh, there's a naffy you know, as well. Look, there's a naffy. Yeah, they could uh, buy anything they needed. Um, 
razor blades, cigarettes, chocolate drinks, um, non-alcoholic drinks, of course, um, except for the, the rum we mentioned yeah, so just when's now. The, when does the rum get doled out? So Milk they, chocolate beaties looks good. <laughs> the um, tradition of uh, up spirits was um, um, mid, uh, midday uh, each day and the um, <laughs> the... So we're talking about the ordinary sailors here. Yeah. The, um, not Hold on, there's the dental officers. surgery. We just got past the dental surgery. <laughs> and, and the sick bay as well. Have so look at this. I mean, this is... This everything is, you needed. I mean, this is obviously 1960s dental surgery, but it still looked pretty good. Wooden desk, you know, old-fashioned desk lamp. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it really is a, a floating city, isn't it? Sort of yeah. the, the interesting endless thing about corridors, little rooms off them. and with Dental surgery and sick bay yeah. are two of the parts of the ship which didn't change in the refit in the ah. 1950s. So this is pretty much the, exactly it, the configuration as it, as it was originally built. They, this and the footprint of the sick bay stayed almost exactly the same. I've, I've plotted archaeologically across the ship the changes between the 1940s ship, that I call it, and the 1960s ship. And this is one where it stays almost exactly the same. Well, that's good to know. Brilliant. You wouldn't want to be doing that on a rising swell, would you? No. <laughs> anyway, the rum. I, I want to talk about the booze. Jim oh, yes. Yeah, sorry about, about that. Teeth. You get distracted right, by teeth. And um, so the... Um, the sailors were, you know, it's, this is a tradition going back to um, the, the 18th century, the, yeah. um, um, when the, uh, the sailors were issued their rum ration. And it lasted actually until 1970, <laughs> yeah. believe it or not, um, when by then, by then um, it was considered too, the, the, the technology was too advanced to well, risk. I was just um, going to say, that shell room, you don't want someone who's had a gut full of rum in there, really, do you? Well, they... they the sailors are very proud of their traditions and very protective of them. Right. Um, the rum was watered down, so yeah. it, it, you know they, it wasn't too bad. But I've I've tried both watered down original navy rum and navy rum neat as well, and um, I certainly would not have been able to operate a shell hoist after <laughs> after that. But um, um, yeah, it 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 was just a, a real a real cherished tradition, and considering. For example, when they're out on the Arctic convoys, where yeah. it's minus 20 degrees out there, yeah. and um, something to warm the cockles of the heart um, was most welcome, yeah. and 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 the sailors appreciated the um, appreciated the tradition. It, it surprised um, um, other navies. For example, during the Second World War, the U.S. Navy was dry, yeah. and yeah. when their sailors visited Royal Navy ships um, and were welcomed aboard um, as guests and entitled to some rum themselves, uh, they thought it was marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> but on an American ship, of course, you get Coca-Cola and ice cream. Yeah. Oh, yes, so they, it had its benefits. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah but give it a choice, Jim. There, there was inside HMS Belfast a soda fountain where you could go and get your soda drinks and your ice cream. It was no. next, next to the library. Okay. So, so all, all, right. all comforts are thought of for the, for the oh, ship's yeah, company. Brilliant. Right, let's look at, let's let's look, look at the yep. engines really quickly, yeah. Right, okay, so we, we're now in the um, uh, boiler room. Two thoughts came to mind as we could come down several levels. First of all, this is enormous. This is an enormous space, a huge space with this boiler. And also, uh, my mind, the first thing I want to ask you is what did this ship cost? I mean, the, the, well, the, the it expense. Is, it it, it expense is mind-numbing, the complexity of this, isn't yeah. it? As we've yeah. been walking down, you know, everywhere you look, there are, there are pipes cladded in wadding, presumably to kind of protect people from the heat. Um, it, it, there's so many different bits to it. I mean, the thing that strikes me is someone's designed this. 
or, well, or there's a design team designing this. But I mean, it is, <laughs> it is so complex. You know, just a bit further on, there's dials everywhere. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's like something out of a kind of sort of a fantasy science fiction film or something, yeah. isn't it? It, it? it is incredibly complex. Uh, and it's one of these things that takes a, a lot of study to try and even figure out how the bits all fit together and it's yeah. ta taken me several months to and uh, years even to actually try and figure out what comes in where and how it all goes together but in here you basically get a process that's kind of classic gcse combustion triangle in that you get coming in you get air oxygen right. you get water and you get fuel to come in which is then burnt and that's basically those are the three things and put together in the right proportions is what drives the ship yeah. Because what you fundamentally want is coming out of this boiler is you need superheated steam, which is going to be pumped through the ship to the turbines and the turbines are then going to turn the propellers. And so the first stage of that is coming in here and through the ship, you will see air drafts. And at the top of here, there's a forced air fan, which sucks air down from outside. So oxygen rich air gets pumped in to these boilers in order to create the combustion levels you need. Well, that's interesting in itself because um, people think of ships with funnels with the smoke coming out of the funnels. They don't. That's, they don't, that, that's they, the burning after exactly, you put the oxygen think of in. The air being drawn in. That's they, right. They, they, you they, have to suck the air in, yeah. and then at the front of here, you can see on the front of the boilers. These are basically the registers, the burners, so that the oil gets heated up, so that when it gets injected into the to inside the boilers, which is a, it can create an intense fire because it's oxygen rich. And so inside this triangular effect, uh, this Admiralty boiler, you will find an intense fire burning because what that fire has to do is turn the water into superheated steam. And it does it through two stages. In the top is the water tank and it comes through the side and heats up from the fire. And it goes into the bottom here where it's then pumped back up again and heated for a second time. And in between those levels, you then get a third element which superheats the steam. And so the water circulates through here three times. And then as superheated steam, it gets directed out to the turbines at the back. And so it's pushed through here to an intense heat and it's turned into superheated, supercharged steam. Really? I mean, I just, I'm absolutely blown away. I mean, I've been down here before, but I'm blown away. I just, I, I just don't know how you get to the point where you can design this. Because and it's, I mean, look at all these tubes. I mean, someone's got to go, okay, this bit goes here, this bit goes there. I mean, there are literally Wait. thousands and thousands well, then of design Well, then and then train men to, to uh, know it inside out so they can fix oh. it and just, if there's a problem, they can diagnose, you know, and uh, uh, repair. I mean, it's and, and everywhere you look, there's dials <coughs> telling you something, mm. warning you something. You know, it's just it's absolutely incredible. It's incredibly com it is incredibly complex. But the, you know, the the designers and builders of the ship were, you know. Um, skilled and um, proud engineers in their in their own right and and you are the 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 inordinate amount of dials everywhere to monitor every single pressure or um flow of water or fuel or temperatures um yeah. whatever they needed could say possibly over-engineered a little bit. I have spoken to one former sailor who told me, oh, we only used a few of the dials. Um, oh, really? Um, so, uh, as I said, the, 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 
but then there's a lot of redundancies there. There's some that mattered more than others. There are some that mattered more than others, but you could check everything if you wanted to. But as as, as, was Nigel was alluding to just now, this enormous boiler we're standing in front of is just one of four. So Belfast had four screws, so that's four propellers in the water, each with a boiler and a turbine each. We're just in the forward boiler room here, which are the two central screws there's an aft boiler room for the two outer screws um further aft and in terms of some statistics um you measure the power of a ship's propeller by rotational horsepower yeah each um screw belfast uh, had had a rotational horsepower of twenty thousand. so that's eighty thousand in total now to give that horses eighty thousand horses to give that some perspective a super cruise liner chugging around the Mediterranean or the Caribbean today um, probably weighing four times as much as HMS um, Belfast uh, if not more than that only has a power of about 30,000 rotational horsepower right but then those sorts of ships whilst massive (coughs) chug along very slowly 80,000 rotational horsepower meant that when you turn the engines up full you could get to your 32 knots in rough North Atlantic seas yeah. and uh, and um, and hunt, hunt down those enemy German ships. Incredible. It um, really is, isn't it? It's absolutely just... Uh, and it was the job of all of the engineering staff, so that all the way from the stokers through to the Lieutenant Commander E, who, who was responsible for it all, to make sure that when the captain said, go, this system could work without fault. And Lieutenant Commander Darlan, who was actually in, in responsible for it all during the Battle of North Cape, was very proud of the fact that when he was called on to steam at these maximum revs and a you maximum speed, the ship did it um, and reached its maximum speed for the time it took to keep pace with the Scharnhorst. And so when asked, Belfast crew responded. And all of these elements that you can see around you here are creating a fail-safe system. And so principally, you might see these are the fuel pumps behind us, which are steam-driven. So they take the steam from the boilers and use that to drive themselves. If they fail, then there are electrical generators. And that's why men like Larry Fursland knew it was absolutely essential that their electrical generators yeah. stayed online because that could be a backup power. And all of these different elements and all the different dials are all charting the systems that need to come together. It's like that big machine that Rob was talking about. This is one giant machine and everybody's part is as important as everybody else. It's essential that each individual stoker keeps his bit of the system working so that the next bit can work efficiently and function without having to stop and look behind them to make sure that it was working. They and just how, trusted. How did the watches or shifts down here work? So were you on, you say for action stations, everyone's on everyone's on for as long as action stations last. But, but let's say you're sailing to cross the Bay of Biscay to Gibraltar. What, what you know, what? Is it four hour shifts? Is it four hour shifts, eight hour shifts? How does it work? Yes, yeah, so you, you'd have had the the four hour watch system, um, which um, again is a tradition dating back to the wooden earlier days, um, and it means that the sailors um, have a set routine, and this is for everyone with um, within the ship, um, and it means that. They know where they need to be at the right times. All of the systems on the ship are manned. uh, And you'd have had a a little um, 
a little nuance at the end called the um, the dog watches, which were mm. shorter, so that ensured that each watch was one step out each yeah. day, so that yeah. they weren't doing the same things at the yeah, same so time every day. So it would revolve on itself. So it's so they're, they're, the dog watches are like a two-hour watch out of the twenty-four, but then moves moves the whole sort of grid on, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. Um, uh, we're, we're running out of time, aren't we? Actually, we are, but I think we should just quickly go to look at the engine. Right, well, we're by um, uh, the port outer engine, uh, which is a turbine, uh, as you, you said before. Um, so this is where the steam ends up, right? Yeah, exactly. One of the places the steam ends up. So the steam it comes through this giant pipe that we're standing below um, here, and you can see it goes around to the right of the of the turbine and into the um, the system where the turbine... It, uh, by now we're talking... Um, superheated steam so it's at the highest possible atmospheric pressure that um, it could be and that's enough to then spin the enormous turbine blades within the um, turbine the engine itself and those are then um, for a sister um, are attached to the the main prop shaft and then yep. there's a system of gearing yep. between the engine and the screw, which um, enables you to um, uh, change its, spe its, its speed or set to reverse or yeah. something like that. Um, and um, so really, other than the gearing, which is sort of separate, it's only one big moving part, um, right. which um, um, considering, you know, how big the, the, the screw shafts were about, you know, about two feet in diameter when we get to the back of the um, engine and, um, you know, attached to the enormous screws, which, um, again, about uh, um, 20, 30 feet um, yeah. across. And, um, yeah, the power of these engines is just uh, mind-boggling. And, again, as we were talking about in the, in the boiler room, all of the monitoring systems, all of the... Um, the sailors working down here, making sure that their little bit was working correctly. And just behind us, um, on the other side, you, you start to see some um, dials where you're receiving instructions from the helmsman, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Full, half, slow, stop. In the, um, in the uh, lower steering position. And um, as part of the, the, the wider um, living machine, so the instructions from the captain or the officer on the watch would go down to the forward steering position, you know, speed, um, um, rate of screw, um, yeah. um, direction, and the, the, the speed of the engines would then be transmitted from that position back to here, and the um, engineers down here would acknowledge it and follow their instructions. And uh, that's how the captain um, could control a ship this big, as you know, almost instantly. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I'm just looking at the sort of three boards on the side here, collectively with about 21 dials, and they've all got things like cruising pinion forward and cruising turbine adjacent block. So in the complex here, you've basically got four turbines. You can see, about, so there's the low power, there's the high power turbine, there's the cruising one, yes. and then there's the one that makes the ship go backwards. Uh, and so right. they, they're all <laughs> to come together, and they're kind of four separate little engines, depending on how economically you actually want to steam the ship. And so those dials will allow you to control each of the turbines. And on the back, you can see the throttles. That yeah. will increase the speed of the, the output from the turbines and therefore the turning of the screws. 
Yeah. And then you get directions through the, the telegraphs coming down. So signals from the captain, from the bridge, uh, from the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the wheelhouse itself, giving you passing on all the signals direct to here as to how to actually run the engines. Because, of course, when you're in here, you can't see anything. So you're no. entirely dependent on orders that you receive from everybody else outside. Yeah. It's quite a thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. I think of the noise in here, though. That's my. Again, I'm. The noise are in the boiler room. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, but still pretty, pretty, pretty good racket in here, though. You've had to, you'd have had a constant hum in here of the turbines. But you, you, you mentioned earlier how expensive is it to, to, to yes. run a ship like this. That's why we've got all of these different um, turbines in here, the cruising turbine, for example. So, yeah, at a full pelt, the ship could make 32 knots. But if you did that sustained, you'd run out of fuel pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. So 13 to 15 knots was the economic speed. And then if you could um, maintain that using the little cruising turbine, which used a lot less fuel... Your um, your you know the endurance of the ship would yeah. um, last a lot, a lot longer. Would they use the main turbine main turbines to get her up, up to a speed and then cruise on the lighter turbines? You can then cruise on the lighter turbines. Right. Okay. Um, so do the sort of grunt to get away with with the uh, oh, wow. Gosh, so interesting. Yeah, isn't and, it? And, Calculations and, and and the thing is with with a cruiser as well. Um, being the sort of the mid-sized ship, unlike a smaller destroyer, which um, needed to return to um, port more often. Uh, a cruiser was designed to be effectively self-sustaining around the world. Um, it, its endurance meant that it could be at sea for months before um, having to um, call in and get call in and refuel and re replenish and everything. And I think as, as we were saying about the, the, the chase of the Scharnhorst during the yeah. Battle of Northcape, mm. If you're on your cruising turbine and you're going along the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal, you're on your way over the Indian Ocean, on your way out to the Far East or Australia, whatever it is, that's fine. But you have to be ready so that when all of a sudden they get word that they're going to chase the Shan horse, they go to action stations, your engines have to be ready. And that was the moment why the, the left-hand commander in charge of all of this during the Battle of North Cape um, was so pleased that the systems responded well and everything was kept as he'd kept it up to scratch. So that at that, like that, he could suddenly up a speed and you would go up from your kind of cruising 15 knots up to kind of 25 knots and you were ready to put the foot down on the accelerator and push the ship forward and so you you didn't know when that call was going to come i mean you've got an inkling yeah. if you were going into a dangerous situation as opposed to just cruising from a to b but that that's where it all comes down to the skill of the crew yeah. in getting the maximum out of the ship and is this the 1938 turbine or is this part of a refit these are the original turbines. They, they, they were refitted and changed, but they are the same configurations right. as far as I understand right. it. Mm. They're not an updated version of right. a modern turbine. Okay. The, the, the three-drum boiler that we saw earlier on and the, the turbines that you see here were already pretty sophisticated pieces of kit. I suppose the other problem is, 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 is you can't get it out, can you? Well, that's what that's that was my next thought. Is when when you're you know if you're if you're re refitting a ship like this, there's, there's a limit to what you can t take in and take out because they're not no. built in a modular style. So you take the take the engine out. You, you, uh, you yes, you you take the deck off. Yeah. Uh, and you remove everything above it and then you can lift the, the turbines out and change them. The, the work like this had to be done. That's why after the mine explosion in November 1939, Belfast doesn't really come back into service uh, until no, almost three years later, November 1942, because it takes so long to do the work because to 
bend HMS Belfast's um, superstructure back, or the whole structure back into line, make it fit to be replated and rebuilt, you had to take the heavy parts out, otherwise it was too heavy to move. And so the ship was basically stripped out, and the turbines were lifted out for that, and then put back in again, oh, and it had to be reset on its brackets. And so oh, basically, Belfast was basically rebuilt, that's why it takes so long, and it's the same thing Especially in the 1950s. Completely. Between 1956 and 1959, at three years, Belfast is rebuilt. And so that's a process of refitting all this. And you can understand from standing in a space like this, the complexity of the running of the ship. Um, The other thing, as you see, is that there are similar types of mind-boggling complex areas to do with the power, the electrical power supply, which was all DC, uh, and the fuse board for the ship. Uh, and where that runs through is absolutely astonishing. And it, again, makes you realise that the electrical complexities of this ship, so that's putting in power itself, it's putting in telephones and communications, running all of that through the ship, making sure it all keeps working, is incredibly difficult. And it's a testament, I think, to the way in which a ship like this works, um, that it stays effective and operational. And there's a phrase in the Royal Navy that people often ask, was it a happy ship? And we're not just talking about everybody has a good time and it'll be like, a happy ship was a ship that was purred along. It was efficient and it was run brilliantly from the top. Everybody looked to the captain, everybody respected the crew and they all worked together. And so a happy ship was one that worked perfectly. Yeah, and almost no iron team. Th- yeah. Throughout its career, HMS Belfast was a happy ship. Well, what a wow. perfect moment to end on. Yeah. Um, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for, for giving us this. I mean, we're, yes, in, we're, um, tree, we're, in, we're in the guts of the thing here. It's just the, the out, but also this engine room, uh, this you know turbine room really sure, exemplifies man. the complexity of the entire system. And also that this idea, I mean, I'm really struck by this idea that the, the, the people in the, in the ship are the soft bit but they're they're as as much the machine as the machines themselves and uh um, without eyes to look on these dials these dials are meaningless and without the without the dials the men have nothing to do so it's this sort of symbiotic uh uh place weapon i mean it's the most extraordinary thing so well you know talking about the second world war the role of the royal navy was just you know Unsurpassed, Jim. Unsurpassed, unsurpassed, and <laughs> and if you want to understand what that involved coming here, I mean, I, I really would urge everyone to come yeah, and visit. It's yeah. a, just an extraordinary living museum in a way. Yeah, yeah, well, amazing. Thanks, Rob, Nigel. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Everyone. Thank you to the Imperial Yeah, yeah, and see you soon, everyone listening. Bye, bye. Cheerio.